else could the world have come into being? How else could there be life, in all its rich diversity, with every species looking uncannily as though it had been designed? If your thoughts run along those lines, I hope you'll gain enlightenment from Chapter 4 on why there almost certainly is no God. Far from pointing to a designer, the illusion of design in the living world is explained with far greater economy and with devastating elegance by Darwinian natural selection. And while natural selection itself is limited to explaining the living world, it raises our consciousness to the likelihood of comparable explanatory cranes that may aid our understanding of the cosmos itself. The power of cranes such as natural selection is the second of my four consciousness raisers. Perhaps you think there must be a god or gods because anthropologists and historians report that believers dominate every human culture. If you find that convincing, please refer to Chapter 5 on The Roots of Religion, which explains why belief is so ubiquitous. Or do you think that religious belief is necessary in order for us to have justifiable morals? Don't we need God in order to be good? Please read Chapters 6 and 7 to see why this is not so. Do you still have a soft spot for religion as a good thing for the world, even if you yourself have lost your faith? Chapter 8 will invite you to think about ways in which religion is not such a good thing for the world. If you feel trapped in the religion of your upbringing, it would be worth asking yourself how this came about. The answer is usually some form of childhood indoctrination. If you are religious at all, it is overwhelmingly probable that your religion is that of your parents. If you were born in Arkansas and you think Christianity is true and Islam false, knowing full well that you would think the opposite if you had been born in Afghanistan, you are the victim of childhood indoctrination. Mutatis mutandis if you were born in Afghanistan. The whole matter of religion and childhood is the subject of Chapter 9, which also includes my third consciousness raiser. Just as feminists wince when they hear he rather than he or she, or man rather than human, I want everybody to flinch whenever they hear a phrase such as Catholic child or Muslim child. Speak of a child of Catholic parents if you like, but if you hear anybody speak of a Catholic child, stop them and politely point out that children are too young to know where they stand on such issues, just as they're too young to know where they stand on economics or politics. Precisely because my purpose is consciousness-raising, I shall not apologise for mentioning it here in the preface as well as in Chapter 9. You can't say it too often. I'll say it again. That is not a Muslim child, but a child of Muslim parents. That child is too young to know whether it is a Muslim or not. There is no such thing as a Muslim child. There is no such thing as a Christian child. Chapters 1 and 10 top and tail the book by explaining, in their different ways, how a proper understanding of the magnificence of the real world, while never becoming a religion, can fill the inspirational role that religion has historically and inadequately usurped. The fourth consciousness raiser is atheist pride. Being an atheist is nothing to be apologetic about. On the contrary, it is something to be proud of, standing tall, to face the far horizon. For atheism nearly always indicates a healthy independence of mind, and indeed a healthy mind. 
There are many people who know in their heart of hearts that they are atheists, but dare not admit it to their families or even in some cases to themselves. Partly this is because the very word atheist has been assiduously built up as a terrible and frightening label. Chapter 9 quotes the comedian Julia Sweeney's tragicomic story of her parents' discovery, through reading a newspaper, that she had become an atheist. Not believing in God, they could just about take. But an atheist? An atheist? The mother's voice rose to a scream. I need to say something to American readers in particular at this point, for the religiosity of today's America is something truly remarkable. The lawyer Wendy Kaminer was exaggerating only slightly when she remarked that making fun of religion is as risky as burning a flag in an American Legion hall. The status of atheists in America today is on a par with that of homosexuals fifty years ago. Now, after the gay pride movement, it is possible, though still not very easy, for a homosexual to be elected to public office. A Gallup poll taken in 1999 asked Americans whether they would vote for an otherwise well-qualified person who was a woman, 95% would, Roman Catholic, 94% would, Jew, 92%, Black, 92%, Mormon, 79%, Homosexual, 79%, or Atheist, 49%. Clearly, we have a long way to go. But Atheists are a lot more numerous, especially among the educated elite, than many realize. This was so even in the 19th century when John Stuart Mill was already able to say, The world would be astonished if it knew how great a proportion of its brightest ornaments, of those most distinguished even in popular estimation for wisdom and virtue, are complete sceptics in religion. This must be even truer today, and indeed I present evidence for it in Chapter 3. The reason so many people don't notice atheists is that many of us are reluctant to come out. My dream is that this book may help people to come out. Exactly as in the case of the gay movement, the more people come out, the easier it will be for others to join them. There may be a critical mass for the initiation of a chain reaction. American polls suggest that atheists and agnostics far outnumber religious Jews, and even outnumber most other particular religious groups. Unlike Jews, however, who are notoriously one of the most effective political lobbies in the United States, and unlike evangelical Christians, who wield even greater political power, atheists and agnostics are not organised, and therefore exert almost zero influence. Indeed, organising atheists has been compared to herding cats, because they tend to think independently and will not conform to authority but a good first step would be to build up a critical mass of those willing to come out, thereby encouraging others to do so. Even if they can't be herded, cats in sufficient numbers can make a lot of noise, and they cannot be ignored. The word delusion in my title has disquieted some psychiatrists who regard it as a technical term not to be banded about. Three of them wrote to me to propose a special technical term for religious delusion, Relusion. Maybe it'll catch on, but for now I'm going to stick with delusion, and I need to justify my use of it. The Penguin English Dictionary defines a delusion as a false belief or impression. Surprisingly, the illustrative quotation the dictionary gives is from Philip E. Johnson. Darwinism is the story of humanity's liberation from the delusion that its destiny is controlled by a power higher than itself. K. 
Can that be the same Philip E. Johnson who leads the creationist charge against Darwinism in America today? Indeed it is, and the quotation is, as we might expect, taken out of context. I hope the fact that I have stated as much will be noted, since the same courtesy has not been extended to me in numerous creationist quotations of my works, deliberately and misleadingly taken out of context. Whatever Johnson's own meaning, his sentence as it stands is one that I would be happy to endorse. The dictionary supplied with Microsoft Word defines a delusion as a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence, especially as a symptom of psychiatric disorder. The first part captures religious faith perfectly. As to whether it is a symptom of psychiatric disorder, I am inclined to follow Robert M. Persig, author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. When one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. What presumptuous optimism! Of course, dyed-in-the-wool faithheads are immune to argument, their resistance built up over years of childhood indoctrination using methods that took centuries to mature, whether by evolution or design. Among the more effective immunological devices is a dire warning to avoid even opening a book like this, which is surely a work of Satan. But I believe there are plenty of open-minded people out there, people whose childhood indoctrination was not too insidious, or for other reasons didn't take, or whose native intelligence is strong enough to overcome it. Such free spirits should need only a little encouragement to break free of the vice of religion altogether. At very least, I hope that nobody who reads this book will be able to see...